On this episode of the Atlas Air Guns podcast, we talk to John Heffron from Wingman 115 and Dana Webb from Mountain Sport Air Guns about air gun videography, scary interactions in the wilderness, and survival preparedness. If you like film, hunting, and air guns, then this episode is most emphatically for you. All right, welcome to the Alice Air Guns podcast. I'm here today with Dana Webb and John Heffron. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, respectively, it's the Mountain Support Air Guns and Wingman 115 channels on YouTube. And I brought you both on because we've had kind of independently, I've done episodes with both of you and we've talked about just a little bit more of the critical side behind the scenes about filmography and content creation. And you both are, in my opinion, experts on this. So I wanted to give you guys the, the kind of the platform just to talk about what you expect from other content creators, what you expect from yourselves and how to raise the bar in, for the community as a whole. So I guess I'll uh, give it to you guys right now. I'll let Dana start it out. <laughs> um, I, I really think... For myself, you know, it started out as a hobby and then it kind of got to be more than that. And it got to be, you know, filming a lot of my trips became kind of a hobby in itself with the camera gear and different hunts and, and really trying to come up with things that are interesting and unique and trying to film things in a way to where people feel like they're with you adding details like you know showing uh the trees you know if there's wind if the sun is out really just kind of try to bring other aspects into the video aside from just the air gun stuff and i think now it's become more of like trying to tell a story and for me it was like kind of a learning curve learning how to narrate and trying to overlay footage that'll kind of tell a story in a way that really makes people feel like they're with you. And I know John is kind of the same way. A lot of the stuff he does is like that. Yeah, for me, it, well, I'm going to take it way back. It was like 1980 photography class. I'm a sophomore in high school. And I really, uh, VHS video cameras were like, you needed like a briefcase to haul the gear with the battery pack and the camera. It, it was just a lot of stuff. It almost looks like the size of like those sports cameras. Like if you were going to go to a football game or a baseball game was yeah, yeah. almost like the size of the gear. But I... 40 pound camera. I really, it really sparked my interest in that medium of uh, videography because I, I was heavily into photography at that point. I was a 35 millimeter um, shooter. I shot a lot of black and white. I developed a lot of black and white at home. And I learned that through black and white photography, you could tell a story with an image just by color grading it. And I think that kind of transcended into um, my video style crossing over to YouTube. You know, I came over to YouTube back when it, it just got done being a, like an online dating site. 
and we were sharing video, uploading our passions. For me, it was mountain bike riding and camping trips and some of the scouting stuff. And nobody really knew how to tell a story visually at that time. I mean, none of us had been to film school. None of us had had any formal education on any of that. And I still don't, but uh, I've read a lot of books and I've had a lot of mentors. Andy Tran, shout out to him, Interbark Outdoors, who actually went to film school, was a big influence on my channel early out. And I would ask the hard questions and I would ask him questions like I asked Dana. You want to find someone that's going to give you honest feedback. You don't want someone who's going to be a yes man all the time and, oh, you're the greatest and this and that. You need to find that 13th man that's going to say, ah, John, you know, the color grade was off. Maybe that the story kind of you could have taken a different angle. And the biggest advice I could give to somebody is pair up with a mentor. You're living in a time right now with the digital age, there's people everywhere that you can mentor up with. And like Dana and I are our best friends. He lives in Ventura. I live in San Diego, three and a half, four hours away. We talk every day. We collaborate on stuff. We bounce ideas off stuff. And that's how really you grow and you learn. Yeah. And, and the way that YouTube is, you know, people are so critical anyway. I mean, it doesn't matter how good of a video you make or you think you made there's always people that are critical they don't like something and uh i think that's in a way kind of the beauty of youtube is you know you can accept people being critical and you can sometimes take those that negative feedback and and uh kind of change things Yeah, the hardest part is getting over the fear of looking at the camera, because for me, when I started out, as soon as that red dot where the record was flashing, all of a sudden I started thinking every thought of every comment that's going to come into the comment section, or I'm overcritical of myself. And you have to get used to talking to the camera, looking at the camera. The easiest way I can tell folks if they're watching this specifically for tips is this. Look at the camera like you're talking to a person and just talk to that person. Talk to it like you're explaining something to a person or you're telling a story to a person through the eye of that camera. That's the best advice I can give. The audio quality, I think, is almost more important than the, the picture quality. Oh, most definitely. Um, When we started out, I mean, the audio quality on some of these little small point and shoot, you know, the Canon PowerShot cameras, the, the, (laughs) the mics on these cameras were just trash and audio was just terrible. So that's a great point. Yeah. The last, uh, well, two, uh, two days ago, I released a podcast with Jeremiah and I had, I was using this this little box that would a splitter for USB C and I had fed this mic accidentally through that and just straight to the computer. And I think all the amps went into the line and I had this horrible, if you go and audition, it was this horrible hum that you could actually visually see on the sound bar. And I had to get rid of it, but it distorted the audio. It was like the worst, probably one of the worst audio episodes I've ever done. And I, it was an hour and a half conversation. So I'm like, you know, I had to sacrifice and just go, okay, I'll just let it out. And if people don't like it, they don't have to listen to it. But to me, it's like audio. The more I get into this as following in your guys' footsteps, I just, if I do a bad job on audio, I just try not to publish it because it's so bad. It's like, 
Your videos are really good, Tristan. They've, they've, I mean, from, I'd say from like your first couple videos to your last video, I noticed a huge difference in everything. Yeah, you know, like the, I got, the, the I got people like you and, and John to, to, to kind of look up to. So when you're talking about mentors, definitely helps having, you know, pillars in the community. And I, I think one of the things that really has helped me kind of shape what I want to be, like what I want this YouTube channel to be eventually is when you guys, when it comes to integrity, like that video, you just chucked that Umarex uh, pistol out in the, in the grass, John, I watched that. I was like, damn, that's what we need more of that. And you're not ripping the brand, you're ripping that model. But, you know, I think honest reviews like that are hard to come by and people shy away from it. Well, my biggest goal here is never to take the audience for granted in that I always remember back how hard my parents worked to provide a quality of life for my my sister and I. And, you know, I don't want to endorse something that's going to be a waste of money for somebody. So if that if that gets people, companies upset, that's on them that they didn't have the wherewithal or the foresight to go, you know what, maybe put a little more thought into the item. It, I don't think it would cost any more money, you know, and I would gladly pay an extra four or five dollars just to have something fixed. And that, and I think that's what, where Dana and I are both in the same camp on that. Yeah. I, I mean, I've had a couple guns where, and I'm sure you guys have seen them where I've just, you know, I feel like I'm bashing on them, but at the same time, it's almost like you got to use them as an example so people get it. Because um, it seems like a lot of them just get worse and worse and worse and worse. And people keep, it's almost like they accept it. Well, as long as, yeah, as long as keep people keep buying trashy products, they're going to put out trashy products. I was at a shoot a couple of weeks ago and one of the guys there had 60 guns, he said, at his house, 60 air guns. Said and he, he, I think he mentioned a few of them. And he's like, I don't like this one. I don't like that one. And um, some of these guys have enough money that they throw, you know, they throw a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars in a direction. So it's not just the budget guns. It can be you know high end guns or quote high end guns. The price is high, but they throw a couple grand, and then when they don't like it, they don't sell it. Just sits in their cabinet. But I think a lot of manufacturers are getting used to that complacency. Well, I think. A lot of those guns that are, you know, around $1,600, $2,000, a lot of them shoot almost equally as well. They're very competitive with each other as far as how they shoot. And so I, I try to look at other things that kind of set them apart, like the magazines. You know, one, th one thing that I've really become aware of is how awful – a lot of these magazines are, you know, you're getting $2,000 guns that are, uh, they've got really awful plastic magazines. To me, that's kind of unacceptable. Brocock and Daystate, probably the best magazines in the business so far that, that I've personally seen. They're, they're pretty good. Um, and I think, you know, on on cheap for cheap magazines 
some of the best that I've seen are some of the most simple, like the ones that come on the DAR. Those are really simple magazines. They're inexpensive to manufacture, and they just work. And I think some of the some of the problems that I've seen in magazines, and I talked to Doug. Doug is uh, he does Stud Mag Loader. He makes the FX brand, but he lives down in uh, Orlando, and he's actually a plastics like molds engineer. That's what his background was. And he talks about the shrink rate, like when you cast um, thousands of magazines, let's say in a couple hours, there's a good amount of shrink that will happen. And the difference between that and like additive manufacturing, they can slowly add a little bit and they can control how much the plastic's actually shrinking. But that's one of the issues other than just cracking. Uh, one of the issues with a lot of these magazines is they're not concentric or they're not lining up with the pellet precisely. Yeah, or the springs in them are just weak. Um, the plastic is just uh, too thin. They'll, they'll crack, they'll break. I mean, it's happened to me with, with numerous brands of magazines. I think that's one thing I'd really like to see change. And I think that's why a lot of these companies like Carm are so busy and their businesses do so well is because there's so many guns that have terrible magazines people you know they need that. that's kind of why i've been like gravitating more to the old school technology of the brake barrel air guns now and uh the multi-pump pneumatics of just looking sometimes more the simpler it's more fun and you know i was did a review on the y-rock uh hw80 I mean, just great freaking air gun, you know? Yeah, you're paying $700 for that air gun, but you're getting a family heirloom that if you take care of it, it's going to last you 20, 30, 40 years if you if you don't um, mistreat it, you know? But even like the cheap Crossmans, the 362s, the multi-pumps, get you in the game, they're fun. I'm going out taking squirrels with them on on hunts, you know, and that's a hundred and nine dollars. You throw a you throw a breach on there for under two hundred dollars. You're in the game, and you're having fun. I don't. It, it's almost like when I was in the mountain bike community of everybody needing the more new and improved. When a lot of times old and lousy works pretty freaking good, and the way the trickle down technology is now, what used to be high-end years ago is pretty much entry-level stuff now. It, but you got to navigate those waters and pick and choose the right the right uh, manufacturer. And we see it on our side is it isn't the item, it's the technical support from a company. You may not, they may have a decent item, but if something breaks and they don't offer any support, then it's not any good. No. A lot of them, I think, are disposable in reality. And, you know, I don't think they're marketed that way intentionally. But, you know, when you hear about so many problems, um, you know, it seems like people are having to be a guinea pig for a new product. You know, you see it so often. Uh, you know, something new comes out and it's the, the latest and the greatest. And then you see all these people on forums and you know other youtube channels talking about how to fix all these problems 
that probably shouldn't have been there in the first place with a little bit of testing. The Viroc HW95, it's one of my favorite guns ever. I had that, and in 22, it's so simple. I gave it to my father-in-law because I wanted to get him into the sport, but such a great gun. But all the the HWs are really nice. I I was talking to Kip Rowe, and he does the service center at AOA now, and I said, what what guns out of curiosity, what guns do you see as like the most reliable, never any problems? He goes, eight the Viroc. He said even their PCPs, he's like they're lower power, but they always work and there's very few times that they're break. And usually just no ring, obviously. And that's a that's something that's not really a break, that's just a failure point, but Oh, I'm a fanboy. Uh, I have three. I have an addiction now. Don't tell my wife. I got a serious problem. I got three HW70s, the pistols, and I just love them. The quality, I mean, because I got this bud for 10 meter pistol shooting right now. And it's like, even though those aren't competition pistols, they're plinking sporting pistols, but they're just fun to shoot in the backyard. This guy's texting me and he's like, look what I got. (laughs) Didn't you get another one yesterday? (laughs) eBay is not my friend. It's like, man, I see something on eBay. It's like, wow, it's too good to pass up. So let me ask you guys as uh, professional filmmakers for for the industry, people hire both of you, obviously. When you get uh, approached by a company to review product, what's kind of your first consideration when you're kind of filtering between the riffraff, what you're going to consider? I know we just were talking about companies are looking at these items as disposable sometimes, and sometimes they're not putting forth enough energy into certain items on the gun, like a magazine. Where do you start the filter process and where you start considering, yeah, I'm going to actually invest my time and actually put my face behind this product, at least to some extent. Dana, you want to start or? Uh, Well, I don't know for me. (laughs) Uh, a lot of times I don't get approached. A lot of times I have to actually reach out to them. And, and that's, you know, a little bit of research. I kind of look at what is available on the market. I try to find things that are kind of unique um, that you may not see many reviews of, number one, because they're maybe not available yet. Um, number two, maybe they're just not a popular product, but I think it's worthy enough to either review or or you know show it being used out in the field and i do kind of look at you know i obviously don't want to step into something that is just a total steaming pile of crap although i have um i don't intentionally go after those products um but it occasionally happens um but I usually always try to go for something that is either not available yet because that's what helps my channel. That's kind of what brings traffic. Um, when people do a search for something, you know, I'm going to have that review and it's going to be one of the first, first ones. And usually they do pretty well. For, for me, because I'm not just like a quote dedicated air gun channel. It's a little bit different because I'm dealing with the knife community, the archery community, emergency preparedness community, you know, over the years, just, you know, 
building relationships with a lot of different vendors and companies. And you'd be surprised how much influence um, folks have uh, in, in the development of gear. Like when I was coming up and doing a lot of backpacking and doing backpack reviews and stuff, companies would uh, ask me to test gear for them. Of course, I had to do a NDA and not do any videos, but it was nice knowing that, hey, you know, your input went into the development of a sleeping bag or or a tent or this sort of thing. Uh, I don't get that so much in the air gun community. I think it's pretty much everybody's a silo in the air gun community. And, they, you know, it's almost, and I keep going back to the mountain bike community where in Dana and I have had this conversation a couple times where there's like, a couple different factions in the air gun community, you know, where you get people that are brand loyal and they're in these camps and they're do or die. And they're going to, they're going to fight to the death on that Hill on brand X. And then you get the average person. That's the consumer, you know, that just wants to go out and plank in their backyard or do whatever, you know? So yeah. And it's, it, it, it's a really, little bit different game i i don't see that like in the trad archery community um yeah people like brands but they're not they don't bully somebody later on because maybe they're not they don't have the new and improved something whereas sometimes in in the air gun community it can get pretty vicious and I used to be heavy on the forums. I'm not going to name forums on here, you know, but I kind of backed away from the forums just because everybody's a keyboard commando and nobody wants to have discussion anymore and, and be able we used to get on the forums, talk and, and learn and do mods and do stuff now. And it just seems like it's a free, free for all where, Everybody wants to prove that they know the most about something and they're just quick to bash somebody else. And I look at it this way. If I'm a new person coming to the sport, most likely if I do an internet search, I'm looking at either a YouTube video comes up or a forum post comes up. And if I go to that post and it's predominantly negative or it's whatever, I'm just going to not even try the sport. You know, and I saw that so much in the mountain bike community back in the day and with this elitist mentality, and it's really disheartening. And what I try to do, and I know Dana tries to do this too, is we're just two guys that we're just like everybody else. And we have a passion for what we do. And hopefully that passion comes off with how we film, the style of way that we film, that we're telling a, a story, that you're coming along with us. Sometimes it's a hit. Sometimes it's a miss. I mean, when we're talking about production and uh, Tristan, when you were talking about, when we get out there, we're by ourselves. We're the producer, we're the director, we're the sound guy, we're the talent, we're the editor, where if you were on a show, there'd be seven or eight people out there with you. <laughs> you, you are that one person. And, and I applaud folks that can get in front of a camera and hold it all together and the color grading is fine. The framing is fine for the image. The sound is fine. The edit's fine. That person's on their A game. 
that person, you could take that person and probably have them work on a TV show and they would far excel anybody else out there Mm -hmm. because they have to do it all. There's people people like that. They're just naturally talented at, at being on camera and, and, uh, you know, for the rest of us, we got to work a little harder, (laughs) but I don't know. It's fun. I think it's, I think it's nice to be able to get out, tell a story, um, go on trips, try to do something different and share the reality of a product, you know, and a lot of times it's not negative. A lot of times it's, you know, really positive and those, that's what I like. I like not having hangups and not having to feel like I'm walking on eggshells and not having to tip, tippy toe around what I say because I don't want to piss off a brand or a product or, or whatever. That's the one good thing about not having a lot of sponsors because nobody tells us what to do. You know, unfortunately, not having a lot of sponsors, we're limited on what we can do. <laughs> so, you know, it, with, with a little, if we had a little bit of a, but Data and I talk about this all the time about idea, filming ideas, and with a little bit of budget, what we could do, you know, and it's just, it, it's crazy where a lot of folks have budget. That's, that's where I get frustrated. A lot of folks have the budget, but they don't do anything with it. They, you know, it's such a bummer, you know, some of these locations folks go to and I'm like, oh my God, the freaking cinematic story we could tell doing this, it just blows me away, you know, but we, we work with what we have and, uh, a lot of people forget, like they'll comment, I'm just a part-time YouTuber. I'm not a full-time YouTuber. I have a full-time job. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. And somewhere in between, I get about three hours sleep. And then, because like Dana and I will talk 11 o'clock and what are you doing? He worked, just so everybody knows, this guy works his ass off. He'll, I'll get up at four in the morning and text him and he's still working all night to produce a video. He'll edit for like 12 hours. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work and people don't see that. Um, you know, for... A five or six minute video, it could be a realistically three days of work. Yeah, like the last the last five minute video I did, or six, I think six minutes. I look at the analytics, and six minutes seems to be very kosher, a very kosher time period. But the last one I did, it took me, I think, two no three different days to film because the first day I filmed. And the next two days, I was trying to get some extra footage, and both times it failed. So I had gone out two different days, and yet I got zero film. So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to use what I got. So I compiled it all, and then there's 11 hours of editing on top. So at the end of the day, it was four hours of filming for six minutes, or four hours of work. So sorry, four days of work. I've messed that up. Four days of work for six minutes. And I was like, oh, man, that was a lot of, that's a lot of energy on that little tiny video. The best bullet points I could give anybody, and I stepped out to go get it, is my production notes. And they're not a script. They're just notes. So when I get out in the field, I can look at them really quick. I write down kind of like maybe a storyline where I want to go. It 
if a random thought comes in of, you know, Dana and I talk about this all the time about intros and how, how would we do an intro to start a story and stuff like that. You may wind up putting that down on paper and then I look at it really quick. I'm not a robot reading a script, but I got all my facts and figures straight. That way uh, you're not misrepresenting something. Because uh, a lot of people think, and here's the biggest misconception, and you guys probably get all this too, is everybody who watches one of our videos thinks that we're a representative of that brand, and we're not. They'll come back and think that we're the customer service uh, rep for that brand, and I have to I have to direct them to there because I I don't want to speak on behalf of some company, but I like to at least have all my specs lined up in a row that it'll do this you gotta you gotta sound somewhat like you know what you're talking a about a little bit it helps <laughs> yeah it helps if you know what you're talking especially about. when i'm bouncing between knives archery air guns you know stuff like that it's it can get confusing so we cover the sound a little bit why don't we kind of segue a little bit. If you're a new videographer, new YouTuber, I'll say it that way. If you're a new YouTuber, you're jumping on YouTube, you're looking at all these big channels, you're looking at you guys, you're looking at you know other content creators and go, man, I really want to do this. I, I want to jump in. I have an air gun. I'm passionate about it. What beginning recommendations would you have for them? Like what what's the first steps they should do to start producing, you know, going on a trajectory to make better and better content? Like what kind of camera what kind of protocols would that you'd recommend that they do? I would look at, I don't oh, think, I'm sorry. Go Dana. I don't want to. I, I don't think you really need a camera. I think the phones that we have now are, are more than sufficient for the majority of what anybody would want to produce. I think the only time you really want to step up your camera is if you're really trying to do cinematography if you're really trying to get certain shots that you simply can't do with a, a cell phone but i think the picture quality i think the sound i think everything else can easily be there with a phone and i know a lot of the channels that you guys watch now a lot of them are all filming with their phone yeah, I feel. What do you think? When I'm out in the field, in Dana's seen this. I my iPhone. I'm out there. I have it on the tripod. I have a, a Rode mic that plugs into it, and I mean, it's shooting 4K. You know, so out in the field, something like that. I think the biggest thing that if you're starting out, and you're going, okay, I I want to get into this. First off, you have to get into it and tell yourself, I'm not going to make any money starting out on doing this. I've been doing this for 17 years and I'm breaking even at the, at the end of the year. So, you know, you got to get into it for the right reasons because you have a passion for it. So you have to, first thing is set your goal. Am I a part-time YouTuber? Am I a full-time YouTuber? Can I afford to be a full-time YouTuber? If you do, maybe you're on some sort of trust money or, you know, what it, who knows? I, I don't know what position anybody's in, but you might be in a position where you're blessed, where you're able to do that. Next would be, what sort of story do I want to tell? And that should be the theme with when you're thinking about doing any video. Okay, what's what's the thing under the thing? What sort? What's the message am I trying to convey? 
it's different on a product review video than it is on a travel vlog video or we're out on a hunt video. When we're out hunting, we're showing the full experience, almost like a vlog. We're, we're showing camp cooking. We're sitting around a fire. We're having some drinks because we're inviting you into our little universe. And, and we're, we're virtually setting a seat up beside us. And you're hopefully you're part of the conversation. You're like you're sitting there having a coffee with us. And on the hunt, you're like you're right there with us. You're you're on the shoulder or you're looking through the scope. And that's that's the story that we're trying to convey. So the best thing that I can tell people, equipment matters later on when you have certain goals that you're trying to achieve. Then I would say editing gear. There's a lot of free software out there. DaVinci's free. iMovie's free. You can do a lot of stuff to get you started. One, to see if you like doing this. Once you decide you like doing it, then you can go, okay, maybe I can invest in a a camera. What do I get? Do I get a camcorder? Do I get a mirrorless? Do I get a DSLR? It depends on what you're going to do. Because there's certain things that you're going to do with each sort of setup. Next would be sound, right? What do I do? I spend four hundred dollars for a Rode uh, Bluetooth wireless mic, or do can I get away with an Asden mic and do that? It, it all depends on what you're trying to do. But the biggest thing, everybody's got a really cool phone right now, and with a proper mic, you can go out and create. I mean, there's feature films shot with iPhones. There are. That's why I, I think, you know, the technology with phones has really made it possible for anybody to be It's even there. It's even the playing field for everybody. So now everybody has access. The, pro, the problem is, is that people need to learn the basics, right? The rule of thirds, a little bit about white balance, a little bit about framing that shot when I'm out somewhere just to make it more aesthetically pleasing because the attention span on YouTube is about 30 seconds. So if you don't hook somebody in that 30 second time frame, you've lost them. So you have to think about that. You can't go in with a three minute intro being a robot monologuing it because <clears throat> people are, they're past that stage. They're going to move on. And, and that was, yeah, that's the thing we have to learn. I think it's just from making our, 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 our building our channel. I think we have to learn all those things ourselves. I mean, the re- that's the reality. Remember when we is, were in school and we had to write essays and then say, you need to have a hook on your essay. And it's like, we don't apply that a lot to video. I was looking at a couple of videos I did in the past because I'm my my worst critic and I was looking at it and going, man, I just didn't hook. I didn't put a hook in. I didn't put a good enough hook, like some kind of way to be at least fast editing or something that was fast paced in the beginning to get people like intentional about watching it. And it's easy, easy for me to forget that. Well, I mean, a hook can be your environment it can be the product you're working with it can be you know my dog i have i've got marley mm-hmm. you know she's she's my hook and um, here's the e- it can be a lot of things. the easiest hook is this put in the work don't be lazy get up when we go out on a hunt 
a lot of times we're up at daybreak. We're out there as soon as the sun comes up. We're out there during the golden hour when it's going down. We're hiking back, getting the shot that a lot of people are too lazy to hike back and get. That's what you got to do. That's going to make, because there's so much trees in the forest out there in all of our genres. And you need to find that little uh, niche that's going to make you a little bit different than the cookie cutter, everybody else that's out there. It could be personality. It could be Marley. It could be what it, it could be, whatever your location and your background, what it, in the story, but. Yeah, and you, you, I think you have to find your own style. I mean, you know, for me, I realized a lot of people are not going to be going out in the, the woods. They're not going to be camping. They're not going to be taking their Jeep out to some of these places for multiple days. You know, a lot of these people are going to be trying to shoot a video in their yard or, you know, in a, a makeshift garage. Um, and that's okay. I think you can still easily tell a story um, regardless of your environment. I think uh, you just kind of have to work with what you have. And, um, and that's the beauty of YouTube is you're kind of able to really, you know, you can make almost any, anything look okay. And, you know, if you got a little backyard to work with, you know, you can set up a target or do some shooting. You've got the makings, you know, for a nice, a nice video. There's a resource, a book I read by a guy named Steve Stockman that is just, it's easy to remember. It's called How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck. And he is um, primarily like uh, he shoots commercials. But I'll tell you what, you can tell a story in a 45-second commercial. We see it all the time. Every time someone goes to a station break, we see, you know, a 45 to 50-second story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they're taking you on that journey and somehow looping it back around to be able to get that thing under the thing within 40-something seconds. So you got to just work on the craft and just take a little time to think about the beginning, the middle, and the end, and how you're going to piece it all together. A lot of times, like when we when we go out and we do collabs, we talk ahead of time that this is our game plan. We're going to do this. We're going to go out. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. We we shoot footage regardless because sometimes when something doesn't work, you capture some really cool freaking footage that you can put in there as B-roll, and then it all comes together to tell a story. And the thing is, is that you got to you constantly learn, constantly learn the craft. I don't know anybody who's a pro filmmaker making feature movies that still isn't learning their craft and what they're doing, whether it's like we've talked about framing the shot, color grading, audio and in writing out a story. So you mentioned uh, collabs, and we've talked about that in the past, the fact that you both collaborate. So I want to use this as a segue. Have you guys ran into anything weird out in the forest? Like 
weird people. Like I know Dana, some of the places you go, I always think, man, I'd bring a firearm because there's got to be some scary people that you come, you've come across the last 20 years. The same thing with you, John. And have you ever had any weird animal encounters or anything like that? Uh, I have not really seen, I, I have not had many bad experiences. I mean, um, once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll run into, you know, some drunk campers or, or people driving around in the middle of the night. Um, I have heard some pretty bizarre sounds. I have felt like I've been, uh, somebody's been watching me whether it has been a person or another animal, um, you know, I have had that feeling. Um, but as far as any, you know, immediate danger, I, I, I really haven't had any experience like that. I've seen cougars out mountain bike riding and the pucker factor is like off the chart because you don't know if you're going to be the cougars lunch today but uh dana and i had an experience we were camping down in mccain valley and it was uh raining that night really hard and then it then it kind of let off for a little bit and we had a campfire and we heard like a baby crying and this guy drives past our camp with a camper trailer drives down a couple hundred yards pulls a hard U, then comes back and jumps out of his truck. And we're thinking, oh, man, this is Dodge City on a Saturday night, right? This is the way this guy jumps out of his truck. And he's animated telling us that he saw the biggest cougar of his life about 100 yards from our camp at night. And that's what that, like, baby crying was. And then Alan runs up there with his video camera. To try to film it. And he's another content creator, but he does backpacking. He's like, opportunity to go film. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going out there, dude. We're not doing this. That was nuts. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the one of the wildest things. I, I have this uh, story. I, I actually told it two podcasts ago, but I'll just relay it to you guys. It was out here in Florida, and I found a couple – state parks they're pretty nearby but when you go there you drive back these roads there's no one else out there i mean probably for 20 miles so i go out there took me an hour and a half to get there i set up it took me two hours because i was going to try to do a review of a gun so i got all my tanks there all my scopes all the guns all the equipment like the tripod set up all the audio everything was going right when i got done i didn't see anything didn't hear anything but like all the hairs on my whole body just stood up and the whole force was quiet. And I just, the, something was wrong. And, you know, I'm a believer and I, I just thought to myself, like, something's telling me to leave. So I, I packed up literally everything and I left. And I was so mad when I got back in the car. I'm like, am I making a mistake? I just drove, you know, an hour and a half, set up for two hours. So it was like three and a half hours invested in setting this thing up. And yet the experience was like so overwhelmingly like the the fear that was present there for me was so palpable that I just left. And I have no reason. It's not like I saw Bigfoot, you know, waving at me or anything like that. It was just a weird experience. And the fact that the force was so quiet really spooked me. So I've actually been asking this question. I haven't been doing too many podcasts, but I've been asking this question because 
I've have talked to a few people since that happened and they have similar stories where they go out there and something happens where they get spooked. And it's something that I don't know, I think it's a lot more common than we realize. It is. I mean, I've got a very similar thing with snakes. Um, and it's been this way for me since I've been a little tiny kid. I can be walking. Doesn't matter where it is. I can be hiking and I'll stop for absolutely no reason. And I don't know why. And I'll look around and usually, you know, five or six feet in front of me, you know, there's a, a snake there. And I don't know if I'm just, I am seeing it and I'm, my peripheral vision is just picking it up and, and stopping me. But it's just the oddest thing. It's really odd. And I think that's part of spending a lot of time in the outdoors you kind of learn to accept that if you have a feeling like that trust it there were uh dana and i were camping out we were filming he was filming me i was doing a uh, like a knife showcase and we we just got done filming and i we were talking and i was looking at him and right over his shoulder on a hillside about 200 yards away was a dark upright figure walking on the hillside that went behind this huge cluster of like, um, it's like these Oak bushes. And yeah, they were, I think, I think they're juniper and it just something. disappeared. And I was pretty animated when I saw that I was pretty amped, you know, in, it, we went up to investigate. There was no sign, you know, and I, I know what a coyote looks like. I, I know what a bear looks like. This thing was walking upright out there. And I was like, it, that one kind of shook me. And the, I've had a couple times like that. But if you listen to David P Politis, the guy that does the missing 411 shows, his biggest thing that he talks about is, you have to trust your intuition that if something's telling you, I think we all have this sensory perception of fight or flight. And if something's telling you something's not right, something's getting ready to go down. So if you spent two hours driving out and you had to pack up, let me tell you what, you're here today probably because you packed up. Could have been a, could have been a Florida Panther. It could have been whatever, who knows, but, that intuition is usually pretty solid. I, I've had a few instances like that in the woods that I rolled up, got out, and I've heard things that I've never heard before. And then I've heard multiples and I'm like, okay, we're done today. Just going to get, get in the Jeep, go. And I'm not, you know, Dana goes out a couple hundred times a year. I go out quite a bit. And I, we don't normally get spooked real easy, but like I, w I went out like two weeks ago and I'm filming and it was just one of those bad hunt days. So I'm now just walking around this ranch, just exploring and halfway through the walk, I get this feeling that I'm being stalked 
And I'm like, uh, it felt like a cougar, but I couldn't, you know, just the, in, the spidey senses. And then I came across this turkey vulture and I'm like, oh, I'm going to film that turkey vulture. Well, the turkey vultures eating a dead deer. And I'm like, oh man, I think a cougar freaking took this deer out. Now I know why. Um, you know, so I sent the picture to Dana, but he didn't think it might've been a cougar attack, but it was just bizarre how this deer was just all twisted and contorted where the head, it was almost like the head was snapped backwards and it was in this uh, drainage ditch, but it was just bizarre. And I was like, okay, I think it's just time to. Yeah. It wasn't really in a place you would typically see a kill. Yeah. It was just bizarre, but the way the head was, I, and when I'm done, Tristan, I'll send the photo to you. Um, the way the neck was twisted weird. It was like, almost like something had broken its neck and it was, it was like, okay, uh, I gotta go. There's this one time I was hiking in the national Sierras. This is above Huntington Lake over the Kaiser pass. And this was a good 15 years ago. So I don't remember the lake, but I was hiking to a lake and it was a seven hour hike. Um, pretty, pretty big incline. And I was hiking it. Actually, I had my ex-girlfriend with me and we're hiking, I think five hours into it, we both got the same feeling that we were being stalked. And she was an outdoors person. I I was, and we both got the same feeling. We were both talking to each other, like, what, why are we sketched out right now? Like, this is kind of ridiculous. We're here together. And eventually we actually just turned around we had, we were like, it was a seven hour hike. I think we were six hours into it. And we turned around, like literally ran down the hill because uh, same thing at some point, we just hit that precipice of, of palpable fear. And we just turned around, bailed down and we kind of ran the first mile, I think, but it was kind of disappointing because I really wanted to get to the lake that we were going to, but. Well, it makes you wonder how many people that are missing, um, you know, may have had that same feeling, but just kind of pressed on. The David, the David Politis that you mentioned, mentioned, I've, I have read a little bit of him and it's weird too, that you see weather events occur in simultaneity with a missing person. Some of those events that, uh, the pretty consistent where it'd be like a weather event, uh, maybe some kind of medical condition, like they get a broken leg or something else is coupled with it. Rocky so. near water, things like I had another instance, me and a buddy were backpacking big pine lakes in between Bish near, near Bishop area. And we were at uh, Lake number four and we're base camp there. Just got done hiking for the day. We were fishing. We're in camp. This guy walks out of the woods, no backpack on, nothing, just a staff with him. And it looked almost derelict. And we're like 10 miles back from the trailhead. And he walks into our camp, points at my buddy's camp chair, and he goes, what kind of camp chair is that? And my buddy tells him what the name of it is. And then he turns around and walks back into the woods and disappears. And every deliverance movie scene, like, can't, we're like, oh, crap, man. Well, I've, I've <laughs> talked to people that have, that they say they've come across like feral people before in uh, West Virginia and down here. I used to live right next to West Virginia and the Appalachians. There's like a lot of fork. Yeah, it's like a folklore about 
feral people out in the in the the force and they're follow you and kind of stalk you and it's a pretty creepy thing i think one of the things that makes a monster i'm talking fiction here in film but one of the things that mo- makes a monster so monstrous is the fact that it's like a sliding signifier it's like take something that's like a human being and distort it in some way so that its significance it's how it presents itself to us is different visually and in our in our mind and it's just very scary so i think the idea of a feral person is in some way resonates in a spiritual level with us that's like that's not how it should be and just i don't know spooky yeah the rest of that camp we were there like two more days and it was like it was it was always playing in the back of your head of like because every horror movie now it just started all the all the horror movies that you ever watched just started playing and it was like oh man yeah <laughs> oh yeah terrible terrible but yeah the david politis stuff i mean it, it him being a former police detective, he treats it like a crime investigation, and he has a list of similarities on all these events. But, you know, his biggest thing is having a GPS device, a satellite GPS device for like a spot or something like that. Obviously, going out with a friend, a lot of us can't do that because... Or tell people where you are at the very, very minute. I always print like a like a map for my wife. And and the hardest part for us is not to deviate from the plan. Maybe sometimes you get up there and the gate's closed and you're like, uh, and I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, if that happens, then I text her if I get a cell phone signal and tell her, okay, I'm at this area B. I'm not at A. And she has a map of that. That way, if something happens to me, at least they have a general area they can look. Because a lot of times, you know, I'm back doing knife reviews. We're an hour and a half, two hours away from a hospital. Yeah, you can cut yourself. So, you know, I always carry a good first aid kit. You should do that anyway, whether you're, you know, doing knives or bushcraft or air guns. But um, I carry tourniquet. I carry quick clot. I carry a lot of stuff just in case. Um, a lot of times I bring a ham radio because I'm out of cell phone range. And at least with a ham radio, I could hit the, hit the repeater and tell them I need assistance and where I'm at, maybe for service or sheriffs can get there a little bit faster. You know, it's just good skills to have stuff like that, especially when you're by yourself. Yeah, the majority of the time, you know, I'm shooting by myself and, you know, a lot of these places, well, not lately, but a lot of the places that I have gone or, you know, if you had to walk out of there, you know, it could realistically take you a couple of days. And you don't really think much about it when you're there, but believe me, you think a lot about it when it happens. And you're like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? And so at the very minimum, I always have enough water for way more time than I think I need. And uh, 
at least let somebody know where I'm at. So if I don't show up that night or that next day, at least I know probably somebody's going to come looking for me, you know, and they're probably going to find me maybe in the next couple of days. And just that alone is a good, a good feeling. It makes you feel better rather than being out there and being like, crap, nobody knows I'm here. Well, he, he got snowed in one time where you wound up having to stay a couple I days. I did. I had to stay, I think almost four days because where I was staying, um, it had rained so hard that the river filled up and there was no way that I could get across it. And then it snowed. And then once the snow starts melting, you know, you got to wait because the ground is just completely saturated. And yeah, I ended up staying there for four days when I was supposed to be back the next day. And my wife was pretty worried and upset. She, she ended up calling the Rangers. I guess they, they attempted to locate me, but didn't have any luck. So, you know, things like that do happen. Well, that that's where some, sometimes the most benign, uh, trips wind up being an emergency, you know, and it doesn't matter where you're at. I mean, even in Florida, the heat, the humidity, the, you know, if somebody like me, not used to super hot weather and humid, I mean, you could drop, take a knee real quick. Yeah. And the same with the cold. I mean, a lot of people, you know, even when it's cold, they get dehydrated and I think the fact that it's cold, they don't realize that they need to drink water. And most of the people that I've seen or encountered that have had, had heat stroke had access to water. They actually had water on them. Or, or even the high desert, right, Dana? The high desert, it's hot during the day. It's 70 degrees. At night, it's 23 degrees. They went out there. Oh, they went I, out there with a T-shirt, and then they wind up having to spend a night, and then they get hypothermia. Yeah. I mean, I've been out there where it's 112 during the day, and then down to 34 degrees at night. And so the the temperature swing, it, it, it makes you sick. I mean, you can get, you can seriously get sick. So I wanted to segue before we go, what are you guys working on uh, this year? What's your kind of big plans, little plans? What are you guys going to try to work on this year when it comes to content? Bigger, bigger, longer. I need to get more trips. I want to go more places, you know, around the country, different hunts, um, collaborate with different channels. Um, one of the things I want to do is try to make my way to Florida, do some iguana hunting. Um, I already have a few other trips planned. I'm actually leaving next week for one of those. Um, I'm driving for a good couple days to film a couple hunts we're going to do. And, uh, I want to do more 
backpacking type hunts where you know we'll be out for multiple days and um just try to do things a little differently try to out try to go out of my comfort zone and try to keep it as um away from i want to keep it away from being cookie cutter because sometimes i think we feel like we're headed that way or you know i I'm at home a lot. I film a lot in my studio. And after, after so many, you kind of feel like it's cookie cutter. And I think having a new environment is the best way to change your, your style of filmmaking and um, bring something different. Yeah, for me, and I've talked about this with Dana, I, I think, you know, what I try to think of uh, thorns and roses uh, on the channel. And I think sometimes I'm too diversified with content because you might get somebody who likes watching knife videos, but they're not air gunners or somebody who likes traditional archery, but they don't like watching backpacking videos. And so, you know, I did a self-assessment. And I said, you know what, this year I'm going to go back to my roots. When I started the channel, the channel was built on air gun content. I started with just uh, Crossman 1377s and 1322s and 2240s. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go after almost 900 videos. I'm going to bring it back to where we started and just focus more on air gun videos, maybe some you know, I love knives. I'm a knife designer. So I, you know, I'm never going to get away from that. So I'll, I'll do my knife reviews because those kind of go hand in hand with that genre. And I really want to make like a feature film documentary. It's one of my, one of my goals. Um, it, I'm not worried about the money aspect of it because you'll always find a way to figure out the money aspect. The hardest part for me right now is just figuring out the time aspect to be able to uh, dedicate the time because a project like a feature is going to take probably months. It's going to take months. And Dana and I were talking about a collab on a feature and just the logistics behind it is just mind boggling. But um, that that would be my ultimate goal. Uh, I'm trying to convince Dana into writing an ebook on air gunning, air gunning uh, like uh, small critters like ground squirrels and such like that. I think that because let me tell you what this guy can spot, and this is because he's been out in the field so damn much. He can spot a freaking ground squirrel, and I'm like looking all over the place, and he's like, "No, it's right there, forty yards over there, and it's right underneath." And I mean, it's like eagle freaking vision, dude. He's he's on that. You know, you you fail enough times and you start to learn. But with that, I think, and I'm going to throw it out there and see if if you're listening to this, put in the comments below. We need him to write an ebook on air air gunning for uh, like varmint hunting. I think that would be cool. One, nobody else is doing that, and I think. Right now, with the way the internet is, that would be a perfect medium to put out there. 
And you could put published author down on a resume too. It would be cool. Just saying publicly, just saying. Uh, have you guys ever watched uh, Dom Jolly? He's in England. He's a he makes uh, TV shows like he used to make Trigger Happy TV. He's actually a really good director, though. He made this uh, documentary series called Dom Jolly's Happy Hour, and he's a British guy. But him and his friend flew to Florida, and then they traveled the southeast, just kind of exploring American drinking culture. And you, you, you got the impression on the first episode because they show up in Miami and they're drinking and getting you know, debauched and going around jet skis. But very quickly, it turns into a documentary where he's actually talking to people about their struggles with, with uh, alcoholism and stuff like that. And it's a great series, though. I mean, very, very engaging. You're just as a viewer, you're wrapped into it. And it, was, it had a comedic side, too. I'd love to do something like that with EBR, where you drive from Florida to Arizona and you document the whole thing and make this, let's say, 45-minute episode, just a single episode but you'd make this whole series like a mini movie about getting to ebr and like the people that you meet across america i think something like that'd be really fun kind of like travels with charlie uh by uh john steinbeck something along those lines but that'd be my uh my my project that i'd like to do i don't think i'll be able to because i'm always strapped for time but i'd in my head i kind of have been thinking about that see driving through texas you could interview all the people at the bucky's truck stops and, and ask him what their favorite Bucky's food is. If nobody's been to a Bucky's in Texas, you got to go. Well, I do, I do plan on filming my, my trip across, across those few States. And, uh, you know, it should be, it should be fun. I'm hoping I can come back with a lot of content, but you know, I would like to do something bigger. You know, rent rent some horses, go on a trip on horseback with some air guns and do some cowboy camping and do some hunting and, and you know, film the whole thing. You know, I, I'm going to throw it out. To what we should do, the three of us collaborate and do an air gun film festival to get people on fire to go out and produce some kick-ass content. And we could figure out a couple different categories. And just like they do a regular film fest, like for hunting, you know, you see that all the time. And I'm sure, you know, we I could beat the bushes and get us some sponsors for this. I think that would be freaking cool. And then maybe do the film festival at EBR or, you know, at, right after well, I it? Think, I think there's a lot of companies that, you know, if you approach them right and you have a good enough idea, they're, from what I've found, very generous. And a lot of times, you know, you just have to ask. And uh, if it's a good enough idea, they'll usually go for well, it. Well, we, we've been doing this long enough to where air guns are not kids backyard can and bottle pop in toys anymore they're they're state-of-the-art tools to go out when i when i when people ask hey what do you do on i go i uh i review air guns they're like air guns i go dude there's buffalo being taken with air guns and they're like what so a lot 
an overwhelming majority of the population has no idea about this. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, because sometimes you get a lot of weirdos coming in when stuff goes totally mainstream. But there's still room for our genre to grow big time. And that's where I think, you know, something like a film festival or or us making a featured film and hopefully it would get some views and appeal to a broad audience would be ambassadors for the sport. And it's trying something different. You know, if it might, might work out, it might not, but you know, I think, I think something like that would, would probably do well. And you may want to edit that out because I'm sure Somebody will steal it. Yeah, maybe I'll just bleep it out. But uh, another thing uh, along the same lines is um, like a anthology series where one ties into another, because that's another thing you can do alongside that, where you'd be able to cross, you know, collaborate without necessarily being in the same location. Because it's pretty difficult, as you know, to try to actually meet someone. But you can do some right. kind of episodic anthology that would work out pretty well too. Yeah, kind of like, hey, what are you doing, John? And it goes over to him, and, you know, he's out, you know, in the boonies hunting with, you know, some kind of gun. And there, and and then that that's where the that's where the gear level would go to the next stage because you'd have you'd all have to be shooting with close to the same color grade, you know, the white bat. That way, it's not an editor's nightmare. (laughs) <laughs> when you get back where because that would that would be a hot mess if color grades totally off if sounds totally you know what i mean so that's where a lot of times with us doing class we've worked with each other so much that i know what he expects you know in in production value on something and uh he's a real and it's not a bad thing. He's a, he's a perfectionist on that where he's, he doesn't settle for just mediocre. You know, you want, cause I've seen him do reviews and he's like, shit, I didn't like that and go back and redo it, you know, a couple different times. And that's a good thing because you want, you want to represent yourself the best. Um, yeah. But sometimes it can be a bad thing. Yeah. Sometimes, <clears throat> I mean, let me be real. I don't like how I talk and I don't like how I look sometimes. And it's really annoying when I'm trying to do something and I know it's just, it, it's just not the right way of, of doing it or it's not the way of saying something. But I think part of that is having some realism in your videos. I think it's actually a positive thing from an outside perspective. That's what I like to see. Um, An example is Les Stroud. I first started watching Les Stroud and that was really when I think the light went on and I was like, you know, I really would like to do that, but I don't know how to do that. And I think he was really kind of the first person that brought the audience along, you know, he would do those long walks where he sets up the camera 500 yards away and put in the work to, to get these shots that you 
you you never saw in any other kind of videos like that. And he just filmed things by himself that, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, came out better than a film crew probably could have done. And uh, he saved money in production. He was able to be very successful with what he did. And there at the end, you know, he started having more help. But I think um, he really kind of changed a lot of what you guys see on reality TV. I think a lot of what you see is really kind of based on that idea. Plus, Les tells a good story, you know. I, I've turned down a few reality shows just because I didn't want to. I have friends that have been on a lot of these shows and it's just not, it's not real. There's nothing reality about it at all. Everything is there. Their producers are guiding you a certain way because they need drama. They need the loud mouth. They need the person that's the quitter. They need all this stuff to create their story. And, um, I was like, and these people that go on these shows think that they're going to make all this money and be famous. You don't make a lot of money being on these shows. You probably union scale $300 a day, maybe tops. And if you say you're on naked and afraid, so you're making 21 days, you know, 60 something hundred bucks. And then after that, you're on the gun show circuit, you know, trying to impress people that aren't impressed that you lived out in the woods, naked, eating crap for 21 days yeah i mean my biggest thing would be having someone be able to manipulate what i do through editing um you know i recently was put in a position where i had somebody um that's going to be editing some of my stuff and i as a a, a guy that does videography that's kind of a big thing to let somebody else edit your 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 content you have to have some trust in them you have to like the work that they do and being on a show like that seems like that would be my biggest issue is these guys are editing stuff so heavily i mean it may it may never have happened the way that they made it look like it happened. Especially since a lot of these commercial breaks are putting hooks in between them, you know, before the commercial break and then after, and Oh, look at this and look at this rock slide. And like, it's actually a nothing burger, nothing, nothing happened. And. But I think a lot of people use YouTube now, at least we do um, as their TV. We don't watch, you know, Amazon Prime. We don't watch Netflix. My wife and I, we watch YouTube. Um, that's kind of our entertainment. And I think a lot of people are kind of moving towards that because some of these channels are so well produced. They're, they're almost better than anything you could find on a network. And there's a lot of good people out there, too, that are approachable. I've made so many good friends over the years uh, that were fellow content creators. And they're good, salt-of-the-earth, genuine people that I've learned so much from. 
And to this day, you know, and um, some of them are still putting out content. Some burned out or for whatever reason decided this wasn't the avenue for them, which is a shame because some were really good storytellers. But um, there's still some good content out there if, if you look. And there's still a lot of good hearted people out there, too, uh, that you can find that, you know, are going to be entertaining and uh, and bring a good quality program. Uh, and that and that was one of the things, you know, a lot of these channels, they get into profanity, they get into crazy stuff. And I never wanted to represent I'm an old Navy guy, you know, I. I, I can cuss like a Navy chief, but I make sure that when I'm representing my brand, the Wingman 115 channel, that I try to maintain a certain level of professionalism That because I want to make it to where you could sit down with your kids and watch my show and not have to worry that I'm going to say something inappropriate. You know, or something where you're like, oh, man, I'm never watching that again because this guy dropped the F-bomb or did this or that. I, I never wanted to be that because, one, you never know who's watching. And 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 whether you want to believe it or not is that you have a major impact on folks, um, good and bad. And I've gotten a lot of good uh, messages over the years from people Thank you for helping me get through this time or help. I'm not able to get out and do this. And I'm living vicariously through your adventures and things. And just to try to try to do that, do the right thing, you know, especially now when the world's telling you to do X, Y, Z, you know, we need to go, uh, we need to slow down a little bit and, and bring it back to center a little bit. Well, during COVID, I think was what kind of made me really want to go out more because I knew people weren't able to, and it was something that I was able to do and I was more than willing to do because I had the time. Um, and it's nice, it's nice to have those channels. You know, I've got a few channels that I watch on a regular basis and they put out multiple videos a week and it's just something you kind of look forward to. All right, guys. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time. We're at a, let's see, an hour and 17 minutes and we could keep going pretty easily, but I'll uh, let you guys get to it. And thanks so much for coming on. And you can find uh, Dana channels, mountain sport air guns on YouTube. And then John Heffron's uh, wingman one, one five channel on YouTube. You guys have any last words? I appreciate it, Tristan. And I do want to come out to Florida and, and we can maybe plan something to do, you know, over a week or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we need to we need to do that. Thank you so much for having us on. You know, this is this is how we grow the sport. And like I was talking about earlier about people being silos and stuff, and we gotta we can't be afraid to venture out and try new things. And if somebody's on the fence thinking about starting a channel, thinking about getting into something, my advice to you is just do it. You know, the, the biggest, uh, there was an old cowboy saying that says, heaven's not beyond the clouds, it's just beyond the fear. And just get beyond the fear. And it's amazing the doors that open up uh, to you when you just push past the fear. So 
thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully we can get together and maybe we'll do another crazy camp show or Bigfoot show or wild animal show in the future. And uh, I look forward, hopefully uh, Dana and I can get to Florida and we go uh, iguana popping. Yeah. Oh, that would be so I would love to do that. Marley would love to do that. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, gentlemen. I'll, I'll see you later. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Atlas Air Guns podcast. Make sure to subscribe, give a five-star rating, and visit www.atlasairguns.com to buy from our shop.